series uh, on the Sermon on the Mount. And so if you have a Bible, I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 5. And we're going to look at verses 13 through 16. Matthew 5, 13 through 16. Uh, we kicked it off last week looking at who belongs to this kingdom that Jesus was ushering in. And we saw that it was all the wrong people, right? It was those that were poor in spirit, those that were meek, those that were pure in heart, those that were peacemakers. And when you really begin to think about these groups of people, these were all the wrong people. Because when we even think about our own lives, we want to be people who make it big, self-advancement, promotion. We want to be able to say, it's all about me. We don't want to be poor in spirit. That's needy. But what we saw, and the beauty of this, the Beatitudes, was that this was truly a blessing for God's people, those who followed him. Because this new kingdom that God was ushering in was all about restoration. It was all about contentment. It's all about making everything wrong right again. And if we desire that, it means that it's okay to be poor in spirit. It's okay to be meek. It's, a, it's okay to be a peacemaker in the midst of conflict. Why? Because it's in, those, in the midst of those hard times we experience blessing in this kingdom that God is ushering in. Now today what's going to happen is we're going from being a blessing to what our purpose in life is when you are in the kingdom of God. What it means to actually be on mission. And God gives us, Jesus gives us, these two beautiful picture illustrations of that. I'm going to invite Liz to come up, Liz Chung, who's our new office manager. It's a kind of a good welcoming way to say she has taken on this new role at our church. But also she's going to be giving us God's word, um, reading God's word for us from Matthew 5, 13 through 16. So give attention to the reading of God's word this morning. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning and we give you thanks for your word. We give you thanks that in your word there is life. There is joy. There is hope. There is peace. There is even renewal and restoration. And so, Father, I pray as we think about who you have called us to be, that we would also be people who would be on a mission. And you have shown to us clearly through, these, through your word. And so may that come alive in our hearts this morning because you have called us to different places. And so won't you uh, encourage us, um, breathe life into us so that, Lord, we might be like a light, like a salt to the world around us. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As we look at this idea of being on mission, I wanted to maybe introduce this idea with a very 
embarrassing but also humiliating story about the first time I ever shared the good news of Jesus with my friend. Uh, it was the first time I ever done this. And this friend of mine I grew up with, uh, his name was Eric, but he grew up in a very abusive home. His dad was just no good. He always felt unsafe. Um, but he also could do whatever he wanted to do. So he could stay out late at night and come home and there would be no questions asked. He could play as much Atari and Nintendo as he wanted, and he never got in trouble for that. Uh, and this was the kind of freedom, but also hardship and suffering that he experienced in his life as a middle school kid. Now, me, on the other hand, I grew up in a very strict but loving, disciplined home. So I didn't get to play Atari and Nintendo as much as I wanted. I got to play for 30 minutes. And that was it every single day. When I wanted to go bike riding with my friends, my mom would say, you only have 30 minutes and you need to come back home. I'm like, for what? It's like, you need to do your homework, practice piano. I'm like, I already did my homework. There is no homework. But it didn't matter. There was always homework that I could do, more things that I could study, more practice math, you know, math problems to solve. And that was kind of the difference, different upbringings that Eric and I had. But we lived only a few houses down. And so we developed this really beautiful relationship and uh, one that we were best friends. And he would always come over because I couldn't go out, so he would just hang out at my place. <laughs> we would play Nintendo in secret, you know, without my mom catching us. Uh, but this one time, he saw the Bible on my bookshelf, and he never grew up knowing anything about Christianity, he never knew what a Bible was, and he took it out and was like, what is this? And that began this really interesting conversation where I told him what I believed about God and how Jesus came down to earth to save me, who was a sinner, all the bad things I did. And he's like, that's stupid. Like, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. Like, there's a God, there's, what about Santa Claus and the Easter Bunny? And, and quickly it escalated into this argument and fight where I was saying, no, you're the idiot. Like, why don't you believe in the Bible and in God? Like, God loves you more than your stupid dad. And that got him super angry and really hurt. And we never talked about faith ever again. Obviously, it's one of the most low points as a follower of Jesus, and one that if you are not a Christian in this room, that I am not proud of in how I handled that. But here, what Jesus is showing us is how we are actually supposed to relate to the world. How are we supposed to relate to the world and to the places that God has called us in your family, in your workplace, in your neighborhoods, at your schools, your sweet mates, your roommates? How are we called to relate to the world as followers of Jesus? Now, if you are not a follower of Jesus, there's also good things here for you to think about and ponder as I speak for the next 20, 30 minutes. Because for a lot of us, we all want significance. We want to make a difference in this world, and we want to make a huge impact, right? 
But here, Jesus gives us a very different paradigm of how that can happen. And so as much as this is for the followers of Jesus, I believe it's also for those who are seeking, who are skeptical for the Eric's of this world this morning. And so I want to give us three headers to figure out exactly what this means. What is our mission and how are we to relate to this world? And like last week, I'm going to give it in three questions. <coughs> the first question that we're going to answer is, what is our purpose? Second is, how do we do it? And thirdly, why do we do this? So first is, what is our purpose? What is our calling? And simply put, the way I would answer this <coughs> is that we are to be in the world. We are to be in the world. Now, Jesus gives us these two very, very common pictures of how this is supposed to be functioning in our lives. And the two are salt and light. Now, think about salt. Now, as we think about the common household use of salt, one of the things that it does is that it actually it's used to preserve food. And this is very common, especially in first century culture. Why? Because they didn't have refrigerators. They didn't have cooling systems. And so what they would do is you would take, for example, meat, and you would pack that thing with tons of salt. You would just cake it where you wouldn't even see the meat anymore because it was encased with all of this salt to preserve and prevent any kind of decay, any kind of microbes or any kind of germs that would infect the meat. And you would pour all of this salt over it and store it for whenever you would want to eat it and use it. And in that same way, what Jesus is saying is, as we are called to be in the world, salt is going to that thing to prevent any kind of decay upon that meat. And we are called in that sense, in the same manner, to prevent decay in this world. And if you really think about our culture and our society, left to its own devices, what happens? Things fall apart. And I'm very aware of that even in my life as I approach 40 years old. My body is slowly breaking down. There's nights where I'm sneaking into my, or not sneaking into my house, but you know, like going through the house quietly because I don't want to wake up the kids. And I'll hear my joints and my knees crack. I'm like, what is that noise that I'm hearing? Am I really getting old where now my knees and my joints are all making these crackling noises as I walk throughout the house? And so guess what I've done? I started working out and lifting weights. Why? So that I could prevent the decaying and falling apart of my body so that when I turn 40, I could look at my wife and be proud of my physique. But much of that is true with our world, right? We look at society, we look at our culture, we look at our workplace. And even if things are going well, we're cynical about how things continue to go well. We're waiting for that shoe to drop. We're waiting for things to fall apart because that's just how our world operates. <coughs> and Jesus here is giving us this picture, no, you are to be salt. You're to be in the world to prevent the decay of your culture, of your workplace, of your neighborhood, of your family. But what else does salt do? Salt gives us this beautiful enhancement of flavor, right? Think about when you 
season a steak. You season a steak with salt. Why? So that all the beautiful flavors of that steak come out as you chew and take every single bite of that steak. My pastor friend was telling me how for him, as a Korean American, one of the favorite dishes that he has is this oxtail soup. And oxtail soup, you just let that boil for like days upon days. And what you get is this beautiful creamy soup. But if you just eat it alone, it tastes bland. There's no flavor. But as soon as you sprinkle just enough salt on that oxtail soup, and you take that sip, it brings out all of the flavors of that oxtail bone and the soup that's been simmering for days. And what Jesus is saying is we are called to be in the world. We are supposed to bring out the goodness from within this world that God has called us to be. There is so much goodness. When we think about Genesis 1 and 2, God created this world and it was good. And in the midst of the decay and brokenness, what we are called to be as salt is to bring out the, and, and bring out this great enhancement and the beauty and the wonder and the flavors of what God has created in your workplaces, in your homes, in your neighborhoods. We are called as followers of Jesus to be in the world to bring out those beautiful flavors of what God has created in culture and in our world. But there's a third thing that salt does, and one that's not common, and I only know about this because of my former professor, Anthony Bradley. And what he says is when there's this misconception that though, yes, it's true, salt in first century culture was to prevent decay and also enhance flavor, Salt was predominantly used for agricultural purposes. And so you would use salt to actually use as a fertilizer in places that are barren, in arid soil. And you put that in fertilizer, salt that is, so that not only would you prevent decay and bring out enhancements, but you would actually bring flourishment. You would bring renewal and restoration to places that are barren, and decaying and broken. So it wasn't just to prevent decay, but it was also to be able to see beauty and flourishing happen in places where things are falling apart. And you think about our world and your neighborhoods and your workplaces as we are called as salt of the world, salt of the earth. Think about all of the different manure piles that exists wherever you live, right? And how God has called us as salt for the soil to go to those places that are broken, that are dark, that are longing for hope, and we're supposed to be salt that brings flourishing, brings restoration, brings renewal to places that we deem, that the world deems dead and hopeless, and lifeless. See, it's a beautiful picture of who we are. This isn't something we're supposed to be. What Jesus is saying is, you are the salt. You are the salt. Be who you already are. 
prevent decay, bring out the flavor of the goodness of creation, and bring flourishing to whoever God has called you to be. And you think about light. You know, think about darkness. There's this one two-mile, there's this two-mile route that I run every now and then in my neighborhood. And whenever the moon is just a sliver, there's this one area where there's no street lights. And every time I make that cor corner turn to run in this one neighborhood, I always get scared. I'm thinking, Lord, let there not be a skunk. <laughs> Lord, let there not be a fox. Let there not be some crazy animal or some crazy person ready to jump me. And I have that fear every time I come around that corner when I run at 10 p.m. because I'm just fearful. And that's what darkness does, doesn't it? Darkness represents hopelessness. It represents fear. It represents cynicism. It represents death. And what Jesus says is you are the light. And you are called to bring hope. You are called to bring life. You are called to bring joy. You are called to bring encouragement to those in this world that are looking at you. And moreover, you see throughout Scripture, Jesus and God, we see this beautiful correlation that He is the light of the world. And we are supposed to shine Christ and the good news of Jesus to the world around us. But guess what we do? We want to isolate ourselves from this world, don't we? Why? Because we want to avoid all possible interactions with this culture, to avoid contact, and protect ourselves from the ills of this world. We value safety and assume evil is out there, so I'm going to withdraw myself from culture because goodness is here. Christians are good, and the world is bad. But what does Jesus say? No, G evil isn't out there. Evil is in here. And so even though you might want to isolate yourself and withdraw from culture in this world, trust me, evil and brokenness and danger and harm will continue to exist because evil is within our own hearts. And God is calling us out to be in the world. We're called to get messy and go where nothing is growing right now, into the places that are experiencing dev devastation, people who are experiencing financial problems, people who are experiencing addictions, oppression, injustice, ignorance. We're called to go where it's messy, where it's broken, where it's dark. And the good news is that we don't have to go far to find opportunities to be salt and light to our world around us. So let me ask you a question. Do you have any non-Christian friends? Are there people that you get together with regularly that are not followers of Jesus? If you don't, you are isolating yourself. You are not in the world. You are not being who God has called you to be, salt and light. Are you involved in dark places, in places that there are arid soil, 
those manure piles where we are called to be fertilizers? Are we enhancing the goodness around us, or are we just as, as depressed and cynical about different cultures and, and our workplace and our industries and politics as we are as everyone else? Or are we truly being light to those around us? Or are you just avoiding the decay and pain and suffering that we see around us? But here's the thing, we can't just be present. We can't just be present. So how do we do it? That's the second question I want to ask us. How do we do it? The answer is to be distinct. Look at this. As you go back at this great picture illustration, look at what Jesus is saying. He's saying in verse 13, how shall its saltiness be restored? If salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? And then with light, um, a city on a hill cannot be hidden. Verse 15, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. You see, the only way we can make a difference and be salt and light is if we are actually being effective as salt and light. If you hide it under a basket, light cannot be light. Light has to be in the darkness. Think about if I turn on a flashlight right now and pointed it here against this wall, what impact would that have? The greater impact would be when we shut off all the lights here and I turn on that flashlight. That's when light becomes distinct. But the same thing with salt. And some of you WashU students are going, or chemists are going, well, salt can't lose its saltiness because NaCl is like the most stable compound in the world. But here's the thing. In this first century culture, salt wasn't ever in its pure state. It was mixed with all of these other impurities. And what would happen is salt would be leached onto these other impurities. And what would be left is this white residue. And that's what Jesus is saying is that even with fertilizer, as salt would make its way, it could easily be leached out with all of the other impurities. And what you would have is this tasteless white substance. And how is that truly being salt if you have lost your distinctness? Of being salt. I mean, we all get it. But we're not only to be in the world, we're called to be distinct. And as we think about this, it goes against our desire to assimilate. And I think for most of us at Restoration, the tendency for us is to assimilate into our culture. We want to be like everyone else in this world to be passive and just go with the flow and blend in and just get along, to not attract any kind of negative attention and any kind of criticism of being a follower of Jesus. This, you know, we value acceptance. And in the end, guess what? We're left with no really distinctive values as followers of Christ. And we become useless. Because for many of us, our values and the world's values are exactly the same. And I touched on this last week. The world is obsessed with achievement and success. Guess what? So are you. The world is obsessed with beautiful people and beauty and sex. Guess what? So are you. 
The world is obsessed with comfort and pleasure. So are you. The world is obsessed with money and power and the best jobs. Guess what? So are you. And we look no different than the rest of this world. And we've lost our distinctiveness. And that's what the Sermon on the Mount, as we go through the rest of the Sermon on the Mount for the next nine weeks, is this is what Jesus is trying to get at. To be in the world, but to be distinct. To be different. So as we think about this, how does following Jesus change the way that we relate to achievement and success? How does following Jesus change the way we relate to sex? How does it change the way we relate to conflict? How does it change the way we relate to anxiety and stress? And these are the things that Jesus begins to address in the following weeks. How is our life different because we have bent our knee to the kingdom of God? You know what the hope is here? The hope is that for many of our brother or our friends, our neighbors, our coworkers, the secular story is not working. It's not working. Neil Postman, he said this, he said, in the end, science does not provide the answers most of us require. The story of our origins and our end is to say the least unsatisfactory, is to say the least unsatisfactory. To the question, how did it all begin? Science answers probably by accident. And to the question, how will it all end? Science answers probably by accident. And to many people, the accidental life is not worth living. So the world around us, your friends, your neighbors, your coworkers, they're all trying to find some story that will answer their questions of purpose and fulfillment in life. And so they go to other things, pleasure, sexuality, possessions, money, power, and none of it gets what they really want. And here is this opportunity for us as followers of Christ to be distinct in our message and in our life. To be the salt and light to the world that is craving for something. And that's what it means to be distinct. As I been watching so much news lately and just reading the papers and different op-ed pieces. You know, as I think about being distinct, my mind went to politics. And here's a challenge for a lot of us in this room. If you hold to one certain party 110%, I want to challenge you and actually argue that you are not being distinct. Why? Because the kingdom of God is not the kingdom of the Republican Party or the Democratic Party. The kingdom of God is much greater. And as followers of Jesus, yes, there are things that the Democratic Party values that line up with the kingdom of God. But there are also things that the Republican Party's values line up with the kingdom of God as well, as, as well. And so when we find ourselves completely in one camp, have we lost our distinctiveness as followers of Jesus of this new kingdom that God has ushered in? It's something for us to think and ponder on as followers of Christ.
Well, if we're called to be in the world and not of it, then the question is, well, what are we supposed to do? And why do we do it? And that's the third point where I want to end this morning is we are called to love the world. We are to be for the world. You know, think about this analogy of salt and light. What happens to salt eventually if it's mixed in with fertilizer? If it's rubbed in to steaks and to different foods or into a soup? What happens? It dissolves. What happens to light if I just left the flashlight on for the rest of the days and weeks? Eventually, it would burn out. And here in that same way, I think what Jesus is getting at is we can be distinct, but we could also be harsh. And we could find ourselves fighting against the world and becoming people who are ignorant where I'm saying, you are stupid, you're an idiot, why don't you get it? And we find ourselves in our own little bubbles in our camp of being followers of Jesus. But we are called to be for the world of this sacrificial love for others. See, that's the difference. It's when we are full of this kind of love for the world, this sacrificial love, one that causes us to die to our own needs, die to ourselves, die to our own comforts and our own pleasures. For what? For the sake of the other. That's when we begin to see transformation and true Restoration and renewal happen as the kingdom of God is ushered in to this world. Martin Luther said this, and I, and I love this quote, God doesn't need your good works, but your neighbor does. Right? God doesn't need our good works, but our neighbor does. And many times we are not for the world, we are for ourselves. We want to serve our own needs and our own pleasures first before we think about serving someone else. But here, this is where the motivations are clearly set. Because how do we know if we're for ourselves or for the other? It's in our love. Jesus said, how do we know what the laws, he says, the, what does he say? He says, the laws are summed up by how? Love for God and love for people. And as we think about this Sermon on the Mount, that's exactly what Jesus is trying to get at. Love for God and love for people. And we begin to see true restoration happen in our world. Let me give you some examples. Rodney Stark, he's not a Christian, but he's a historian and sociologist who studied the reasons why Christianity grew so much in the Roman Empire. And he quotes all of these different church fathers, and secular emperors. And one of them was Dionysius, bishop of Alexandria. And this was at a time when there were all these epidemics happening. <clears throat> Smallpox in 165 killed probably about one-third to a quarter of the world. And here, Dionysius, bishop of Alexandria, said this, during the great epidemic, most of our brother Christians showed unbounded love and loyalty. Never sparing themselves, heedless of danger, they took charge of the sick, attending to their every need and ministering to them in Christ. Many in nursing and 
Many, in nursing and curing others, transferred their death to themselves and died in their stead. The pagans behaved in the very opposite way. At the first onset of the disease, they pushed the sufferers away and fled even from their dearest, throwing them into the roads before they were even dead. Emperor Julian, not a Christian, said the impious Galileans who were Christians support not only their poor, but ours as well. Everyone can see that our people lack aid from us. And Rodney Stark makes this conclusion that the reason Christianity grew so much was the love that they had for the world around them. Not caring for their own, but also for those that were different from them. That's what it was to be salt and light. And it's still true today. Nicholas Kristof, who writes for the New York Times, who's not a believer, but I believe he's close with the things that he writes. He wrote this in a piece a few years ago. He said, I don't agree with evangelicals on theology or on their typically conservative views. However, today, conservative Christian churches do super, superb work on poverty, AIDS, sex trafficking, climate change, prison abuses, malaria, and genocide in Darfur. In parts of Africa where bandits and warlords shoot anything that moves, you often find that the only group still operating the doctors without, are doctors without borders and religious aid workers, crazy doctors and crazy Christians. We can disagree sharply with their politics, but to mock Christians underscores our own ignorance and prejudice. And one of my favorite um, uh, podcast and one of the best storytellers is Ira Glass. And in an interview, he said, the Christians in my life were all incredibly wonderful and thoughtful and had very ambiguous, complicated feelings in their beliefs and seemed to be totally generous hearted and totally open to a lot of different kinds of people in their lives. The portrayal of Christians as doctrinaire, hothead, crazy people doesn't square with fond recollections of former public radio colleagues who kept Bibles on their desks and invited him, me to screenings of rapture movies. <laughs> Here's an atheist who experienced followers of Jesus who were being salt and light to him. And so when you listen to This American Life or anything he puts out, he gives a very fair view of Christians because of his own experience. That's what it means for us to love and be for the world. Without love for the world, we lose our saltiness and smother our light. But with love for the world, it becomes beautiful. It becomes compelling. It becomes attractive. This verse, this last verse we read in verse 16, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works it's not good. It's actually beautiful is the actual translation. And see, it's when we are salt and light, there is this beauty, and it's compelling to the world around us. And let me encourage our church. We are doing it. So many of you are doing it. As I thought about that this week, I wrote all these different stories as I meet with each of you. I hear of what you are doing. 
There's a group of guys from our church who hit up the same basketball court near their homes and have built relationships with these men on this basketball court. There's another person every tax season goes to their local library and files taxes for those that can't or can't afford it. There's others here who tutor and give of their time to underprivileged kids. There's others who visit nursing homes weekly. Others are involved in boards of certain organizations or municipalities. Some of you are room parents for your children's schools and classes. Others are on boards of cities, and, or same thing. Some have built relationships with business owners to care and see the flourishing of their businesses. Some of you have been, gotten involved in foster care. Others have adopted. Some of you are involved in your workplace and know your coworkers and have built relationships with them to be distinct. You see, these are the ways we are salt and light to our world. But it won't seem worth it until we're able to see Christ, right? Because when you think about Christ, think about what he did. He left the glories of he heaven, of his own comfort, and entered into the darkness and decay of our world. He was distinct as he came alongside lepers and prostitutes and the homeless and the sinners. And he offered them something that was completely different, that was attractive and beautiful. And ultimately, we know our Savior went to the cross out of this sacrificial love that led to his death for you and for me so that we might be called salt and light in our neighborhoods, in our communities, in our families. I pray that that would be true of us it's not something we're attaining to, but we already are. And may the Holy Spirit and His work allow us to have the courage and the faith to be people who would go into those dark places that God has called us to. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we come before you and we thank you that, Lord, you have called us to be salt and light. That is who we are. And so, Father, I pray that with the grace and the strength and the courage, Lord, that you had to come into this dark and broken, decaying world where you brought flourishing and renewal and restoration. Lord, I pray that that would be true of us as well. Help us to look to you even as we come to the table. May that be our strength and our encouragement as we look to Christ in his absolute love, his sacrificial love that was for us. May we, may we do the same for others, wherever that may be. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.